Okay, everybody, welcome to the newest episode of True Crime for Dummies. I'm your host, Jada. I'm your host, Jazz. And this is our podcast where we talk about uh, true crime stories that we have recently discovered and sometimes not, you know, and we just bring those cases to light. We like to highlight cases, including people of color, Black, Indigenous people of color in particular. And this morning, it's very early to podcast. I think this is the earliest we've ever podcasted, right? Um, no, I feel like we did one of these before, just once. Yeah, but it was never published, probably. Probably not. Yeah, that, you know, it happens. Well, this is the second season of our show. And to commence that, I am going to be talking about a story that I heard recently on Morbid. Um, I went on a road trip with my husband and on our way back to Atlanta, we were listening to a few podcasts and this case just really struck me for some reason. Um, Of course, it's really sad anytime that, you know, somebody's life is taken by a sicko, but this case just was so interesting to me that I thought I would talk about it. I've watched some, um, I think like Dateline NBC kind of documentaries on it. I've read a lot of different things from Colorado newspapers because that's where this all goes down. And without further ado, I just want to kind of put you guys into the story. So I'm going to start my story off with a quote from the killer. I'm not sure if this is something that I want to do or continue going forward because I never want anybody to feel like I am trying to highlight the killer in these cases because it's not what it's about. It's about the victim, the crime, that sort of thing. I don't, I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to give this psycho notoriety. But I just also find it very interesting. If you've ever listened to interviews from a serial killer or read books from serial killers or with interviews from them, the kind of things that they say is just rather intriguing, wouldn't you say, Jada? Most serial killers, it's almost like they're grounded in reality, but it's just a different reality than ours. Right. That's a great way to put it. So I think that going forward, I may start some of my stories off like this because it just kind of gives you insight on how their mind works. Because again, they're in a different place than us. They're at the same time as us for sure, but a different place entirely. Quote, For the people that knew me, I have to say, remember me, please. Remember me as I was, not the monster I became. I'm sorry, unquote. That is a quote from Travis Forbes, the man who is responsible for the two crimes that I'm going to mention today. This was at his trial, and I thought it was extremely interesting because at no point did he say sorry to the victim's families in this quote or in this statement He talked about himself, and that is just um, keen behavior of a psychopath. They don't feel remorse. They don't think about their families, their their victims' families. They just think about themselves. So on April 1st, 2011, Kenya Monhe would go out to a Denver nightclub with friends and never return home. Kenya was a 19-year-old recent high school graduate from Honduras. She loved the colors pink and black. She loved makeup. Hello Kitty, and is described by her mother Maria as very girly. Most importantly, she loved her family. She moved to Colorado when Maria married a man named Tony Lee. 
Her mother was so excited to be reunited with her daughter. She even decorated Kenya's room prior to her arrival. She told anyone and everyone that her daughter would be coming home soon. Tony and Kenya had a great bond. She recognized him as her father and herself as his daughter, which is super important in like blended families. She immediately um, was drawn to him and loved him and thought of him as a father figure in her life. So just imagine her parents' worry when she didn't come home on April 2nd of 2011. Tony even left work to dedicate his day to finding Kenya. He contacted all his daughter's friends in an attempt to learn more about where she was. Each friend gave vague details and half-truths about their time together the night before, but eventually he was able to pry it out of them. Her friends confessed that they had went out the previous night. They used their fake IDs to explore Lodo, which is lower downtown Denver, and her father was very upset about this. He knew Kenya to be a very motivated person, very academic. He just thought she was kind of above this sort of behavior. And when you're a teenager or a young adult, really at any stage of your life, the way that you like to spend your free time is not a reflection of who you are as a person or like how motivated you are. She liked to work hard, but she also liked to party hard. And he just had no clue about this kind of secret life that she was living when Tony asked Maria and his youngest daughter about Kenya's kind of party girl stage, they were pretty aware that Kenya liked to go out. She liked to have fun. She liked to dance. So her friends were hoping to get into a bar called Lavish, but two of the girls were unable to get past the bouncer. Because the girls were so cautious and agreed to remain together, they decided to try a different club. Kenya danced all night with her cell phone and purse placed on top of a table her friends were chatting at. Around 1 a.m., there are different reports. So either she was dancing on the dance floor and they looked up and they didn't see her, or she went to the bathroom and she never returned. But when Kenya didn't call her friends or her boyfriend the next morning to replay the details of the night, they knew something was wrong. She always, always, always called her friends and just kind of went through and laughed with them about what happened the previous night, which is something a lot of people do. Um, and Kenya was not the type of person to leave her phone calls unanswered or her text messages unanswered either. As the hours pressed on, her father's anger disappeared. All he wanted was to find his daughter. The police department was hesitant to begin an investigation that afternoon. Sometime during that day, Kenya's phone was returned to her parents and around 7 p.m., Kenya received a text message from an unsaved number. It read, quote, hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride home last night. Creepy white van, smiley face. Did you get home okay? Unquote. The part that disturbed me the most about this was the fact that he said he had a creepy white van and then proceeded to put like a little emoticon, like not, it was, you know, it was 2011. It wasn't really like an emoji, but like a smiley face. Something's just not sitting right with my spirit about that. He thought it was so, funny and it's not funny. No, it's very it's, odd. It's not funny. Tony was immediately interested in knowing more about this Travis character. He called the phone number back to back. And after a few tries, Travis did pick up. Travis Forbes saw Kenya outside of a nightclub and she was visibly upset and intoxicated. He offered to take her home to make sure she got there safely. So they got into his creeper van. And when Kenya wanted a cigarette, he pulled over at a Kanoko gas station. It was in this parking lot that Kenya wandered off into the distance with a fellow smoker. Some reports say Travis heard Kenya speaking Spanish with the stranger before they linked arm in arm and just walked off into the night. 
He didn't have any further details, but he offered to meet her father at the same gas station to show where Kenya was last seen. Maria was rightfully suspicious, so she called the police and asked them to just be there. Of course, Tony took a weapon to defend himself. I believe he took a nine millimeter pistol. Oh, look at um, Tony. <laughs> yeah, he's not playing around. When the police cruiser pulled up, Travis reiterated the same story word for word. The police were immediately interested in this strange story. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, they promised to keep an eye on Travis. And as they were leaving, Travis began to cry. He told Tony, quote, I wish I could have done more. I promised I would take care of her. I feel responsible for this, unquote. And I'm just kind of confused. I mean, it's sad. There's a teenage girl missing. You're the last person to see her. But this very strange, like outward display of emotion with her father, it's just weird. It's, it's just not normal. Um, so obviously that made things even more bizarre and the two shook hands. Tony would later say that there was an earthquake beneath Travis's feet as they embraced. He was shaking like crazy. And at this point, Tony knew he was shaking the hand of the last person who saw his daughter alive. When the police researched Travis, they learned he had been in trouble with the law before. He had drug-related charges and was currently on probation for domestic violence. Further investigation revealed the gas station was closed at the time he was supposed to be there with Kenya. So red flag number 1,000 of, of many in this story. So the police continue questioning Travis at the bakery he worked at. And again, he repeats the same story that he's committed to memory by this point. Travis was a local entrepreneur who was currently renting a space at a bakery to sell his homemade gluten-free granola bars. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So very reminiscent of the Baker Butcher. That's definitely a story we're going to do sometime in the future. But this is a guy who has a semi-normal life. He's, you know, nice enough. I saw his, I saw his uh, mugshot pictures and he was attractive, like most people would say, I think. So it's just a complete 180 to who he really is. Investigators obtained a search warrant for his quote unquote creepy white van. And as soon as they opened the doors, it reeked of bleach. There was so much bleach that it was dripping from the sides of the vehicle and like had pulled together on the ground. What's even stranger, weirder, more bizarre to me was that there was also a carpet inside of this van that appeared to be brand new. His tires were extremely dirty, despite the fact that Travis reported he was only delivering granola bars that night. And his girlfriend corroborated this story. She will eventually spend some time in jail for lying to the police and, you know, withholding information for an investigation. His cell phone recently pinged at a tower 30 miles east of Denver, and this location was nowhere near his delivery route. This is a small segment I like to call very stupid criminals. Back at the bakery, someone was clearly stealing money from the register. Naturally, the manager set up surveillance system. And on the night of Kenya's disappearance, the security camera captured Travis coming into the owner's office to unplug the cameras. He thought he was so smart, so above all logical thinking that he could literally just walk into the office and unplug the cameras and nobody would know it was him as if the camera is not literally catching him walking inside of the office. Didn't delete mm. any tapes. What makes it so bad is also there was like a completely separate 
like server or camera system in a different room. So he just turned off like one section of the cameras. They were able to detect that it was Travis. He was sporting yellow cleaning gloves. Another camera in the building spotted Travis carting in his granola cooler and putting it inside the freezer. For reference, these granola bars do not need to be frozen. Even his manager corroborated that. The cooler he had was sloppily taped shut as well. So his manager advised police that this was odd. And there was also a burned grease barrel in the back of the shop. This is where they would usually put like their old grease, that kind of stuff. But it was very clearly charred and it was burned so badly that there was no forensic evidence to be found. Travis Forbes was sure that there was only one option to clear his name. He went on live television. He told the reporter it was very stressful to have people think he killed someone. During the interview, he also completely forgot Kenya's name. Like at one point was asking the interview like, oh, what's her name again? Like who? Trying to remove himself so far away from the situation after he was just the same man crying while he shook her father's hand because he wished he could have done more. And like, now you don't remember her name. Mm. After this failed interview, Travis falls off the face of the earth. A few days go by before a Texan woman reports her car stolen by an ex-boyfriend. So apparently he borrowed the car and just never returned it. Uh, Denver police were certain that this was Travis headed to Mexico from Austin, Texas. They were able to arrest Travis and take DNA samples. Unfortunately, this woman who reported her car stolen refused to press charges because she was adamant there was no way that he was up to anything bad when he stole her car. He kept a low profile after his release, just going to work and making his little granola. But around July 4th, he started hanging out in Fort Collins, which is like a college town similar to lower downtown Denver. So people love 4th of July. Okay. If you're not American, people love it. It's fireworks, barbecues. And when Lydia Tillman came home after attending a celebration with her friends, she would have never imagined what was next to come. On July 5th, Lydia Tillman's apartment was engulfed in flames. She jumped out of her window to escape the fire. And that's not even the worst part. Before the apartment was intentionally set ablaze, Lydia was sexually and physically assaulted by her attacker. She had broken ribs, a shattered jaw, a broken wrist, and was completely doused in bleach. This becomes a very interesting detail to investigators. So when the ambulance came to the scene, Lydia literally ran to them. She suffered a massive stroke in the ambulance and spent five weeks in a coma. While in the hospital, the police swabbed under her fingernails and sent it off to forensics. Police found Travis in Fort Collins, walking up and down the strip with a bottle of whiskey. When an investigator asked him for his name, he replied Travis Kennedy. So they just let him go. Uh, But they did continue to tail him until they realized he was actively following a drunk girl down the street. Within seconds, they were on him and they took him down to the station for false reporting. But they knew that their time was limited. That's not something you can really hold somebody on. Just minutes, literal minutes before Travis was set to be released on bond, they got a call from the lab and the DNA collected from Lydia's attacker was a match for 31-year-old Travis Forbes. When investigators alerted Kenya's family, Tony had just one question. Where is Kenya? 
Tony called the district attorney personally and begged him to make a deal with Travis. He was only concerned about finding his daughter and he had absolutely no care in the world for what the charge had to be in order for him to lay his daughter to rest. He was, he was willing to go manslaughter if he had to. So Travis was only willing to talk to Detective Nash Goulet, who was an investigator on the case since Kenya's disappearance. I want to confess, he told Detective Goulet. I want to confess so bad. In exchange for his testimony, Travis requested one thing, to carry out his prison sentence without being labeled a sex offender. Quote, because if I go to prison as a sex offender, I'm fucked, he said, unquote. So Travis, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which he's right. He's he's right. But that is not something that should be negotiated. That's I, I mean, I totally understand where Tony's coming from. He just wants his daughter um, he just wants to know the details of what happened. But at the same time, that sounds, that's, that's feeling a little unlawful. Okay. But you, you know, because get... the prisoners will always find out if they want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. This case was so highly publicized. I would be surprised if they didn't find out immediately. Mm-hmm. So under the advice of Tony, you know, Detective Goulet agrees. And Travis gives a complete confession. He saw Kenya walking in downtown Denver the night she went missing. He offered her a lift home, and when she entered the van, she passed out. He says, I definitely took advantage of her being drunk. And he confessed that he, quote, had sex with her in the back of the vehicle while she was unconscious. And Jess, I know you guys are smarter than that, but in case, you know, your brain's just not working, it's early in the morning for you, or in case no one's ever told you, having sex with an unconscious person is not sex. I need you to know that there's a word for that. And it starts with an R. Okay. You, you need to be aware of that fact because someone who is unconscious cannot consent to anything, literally anything. He says she kind of came to and realized that we had sex, which again is not the truth. And she started hitting me and I started hitting her back. And then she started to scream and I strangled her. I strangled her. I strangled her. I killed her. He left her lifeless body in his van for a full 24 hours. He removed Kenya's clothing and burned them behind the bakery in that barrel. He led investigators to Keensburg, which is ding, 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 a place 30 miles away from Denver with muddy terrain. This is where he had a shallow grave for Kenya Monheim. As soon as he got out of the cop car, Travis let out what was described later in interviews as an animalistic scream. For literally no reason at all. Just he is over dramatic. Yes, he loves he he is drama queen. Confessions of a teenage drama queen is him. He is theatrical. He's been watching too much television, honestly. Yes, yes. And what is with these people watching too much TV? Watching too much TV. They need to read books. That's what they need to do. Try to get your life together. So Travis Forbes pled guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He also received an additional 48 years for the attempted murder of Lydia Tillman. And side note, Lydia Tillman is alive. She's well. She is thriving. She's like found yoga through healing, you know, emotionally from this trauma. She is doing the damn thing. And, you know, that's that's something that... Kenya's family is very, very happy about. 
um, Kenya's mother, Maria, even gave Lydia a ring that belonged to Kenya because she said she knew her daughter would want Lydia to have it. Oh, I know that was a sweet moment, but here's a final quote from this. I don't know this little Eminem wannabe sicko. He says, I'm so thankful that Lydia Tillman survived. Because if I hadn't been caught, I probably would have done this again. Because deep down, I'm fucked up. I'm evil. Again, making I it. I can't with him. What is, what is about he him? Because who even asked you, Travis? Who asked you? He really like planned out like his entire like serial killer monologue. Yeah, yeah. Arrested. Like was even was it even about killing people? Was that even an urge you had, or did you just want to be on TV saying dumb stuff? I I truly and honestly don't know. I got information for this case from Oxygen, CBS, ChillingCrimes.com, ABC News, Heavy.com, and once again, the podcast Morbid. He is still in prison. And if you go on our Instagram, we will have a photo of Travis Forbes as well as the victims for you to make your own, you know, physical assessment of this Eminem wannabe just in case you want to see if the proof is in the pudding it absolutely is but yeah this was just a really sad story to me Kenya had so much life ahead of her and she was just trying to have some fun with the girls it wasn't her first time going out it wasn't her first time with these girls and still she lost her life because this granola man decided that he wanted to act on some weird urges and things got messed up Mm-hmm. what are you thinking um I, I truly and honestly can't get over all of the dumb stuff he was saying he just continued to say it yeah every time you thought it couldn't yeah. get worse it did it got so much more worse it just this is one of those things where like it feels like a crime of passion like it's not like a like a setup thing but then he went on and did it again for again what oh, seems to be that is Super important, actually. Thank you for bringing that up because when he attacked Lydia Tillman, it had only been five weeks since he murdered Kenya. Five weeks, a month and some change. Mm-hmm. But it's not like he set up any of his attacks or planned anything. Like a lot of the other people on our shows had kind of planned to attack these people or at least prepared to right. maybe harm many of these, um, many of these women and girls. But for him he just he just didn't no he thought the bleach was enough and he had no clue that Lydia Tillman was way stronger and way more resilient than he um, sized her up to be and that's it's just sad because strangling somebody takes a lot physically um it's not like a movie it's not just like a hold you down for 30 seconds and then it's over Sorry. It's not like a hold you down for 30 seconds and then it's over. It actually takes a lot of like manpower to do that. It takes several minutes to strangle someone to death. So while he was literally had his hands around her throat, at any point he could have stopped. But he didn't because he was so concerned with being caught for something that he knew was wrong. It wasn't just the fact that she started hitting him and she started to scream. He knew that what he did was wrong. He knew that assaulting her was wrong and he didn't want to get in trouble for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, that concludes the case of Kenya Monhe and the awesome survivor story of Lydia Tillman. Again, all this stuff is going to be 
on our socials, which is Instagram. Our Instagram is at True Crime for Dummies Pod. And we will be right back after this short break. Okay, thank you, everybody. And welcome back from the break. And we're going to get started right now with my little case that we're going to do. He said, while looking at the prosecutor, the judge, and the victim's families, I'll be back. Mm. He will be back? Yeah, he'll be back. Oh, oh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's very ballsy. You'll be back? Yeah. We'll see about that. So today we're going to talk about Chester Dwayne Turner. He is going to like go down the line. He would be Los Angeles's fourth most notorious serial killer and rapist. Now, he's not actually a California native. He was born in Warren, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. His mother and him moved to Los Angeles after his mother and his father split. And for most of his childhood, his mother had to work two jobs to support them. The entirety of his academic life was filled with social and ind- disciplinary problems. He was constantly getting into stuff with other kids and with teachers. Mm-hmm. He ended up dropping out of school and working at Domino's Pizza as a delivery boy. He never got married, but he did have four kids. I should also mention that he was in and out of prison before the crimes we're about to actually talk about him committing. He went to prison seven times in between 1995 Jesus. and 2002. Six were nonviolent offenses like theft and burglary, but one was for the assaults of an officer and cruelty to an animal. I would argue that theft and burglary is um, a violent crime. How no. do you take something from someone nicely? Is considered a non-violent crime because he didn't harm the victims. Nor mm, no, I'm just saying them. like the, the act itself is aggressive. In March 2002, Turner committed what would seem to be his most violent crime yet. A 47-year-old woman whom sold cigarettes outside an L.A. mission shelter was attacked by a man with a crack pipe who asked Why? if he could... <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Turner also okay. did do drugs, so I don't really know. Where are we obtaining, yeah, crack pipes? Okay. He asked her if he could get a light. When she was going to give it to him, he dragged her into a parking lot and sexually assaulted her for two hours. He also threatened her that he was going to kill her if she ever tried to go to the police. She ended up actually escaping twice and later led the police directly to the crime scene and subsequently directly to Turner because he was only about a block away hiding fully clothed in a shower of another mission sensor. <laughs> Don't laugh. What? Don't did he laugh. not have a car? He did not have a car. No, he was homeless. Okay. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Um, well, mm-hmm. oh, okay, Chester. He was convicted and sentenced eight years for this. And in California, they have something called the CODIS, otherwise mm-hmm. known as the Combined DNA index system so he was required to set his dna to the california little people and by september 2003 kester's dna was pinged to nine unsolved murders and rapes and by the time of 2014 that number had rose to 15 oh my gosh his victims included diana johnson antonette ernest anita fishman regina washington 
Deborah Williams, Mary Edwards, Andrea Lavon, Triplett, Desiree Jones, Natalie Jonah Price, Mildred May Beasley, Paula Donna Vance, Brenda Lee Bryce, Cynthia Annette Jones, Eldra Joyce Bunn. All of his victims were either homeless or on the streets and in between their early 20s to mid 40s. Most of them were in their 30s though. Victims like Anita Fisherman were working with families to turn their lives around and victims like Regina Nade Washington were pregnant during the time of their rape and murder. Oh. And it indeed ended up taking her child's life. She was five and a half months pregnant. Oh. In 2014, got sentenced to the death penalty for all of these crimes. In September of 2020, they had to do an automatic appeal for his crime. Why? Because it's just how California's little, like judicial little system. system works. They just do automatic appeals. On November 30th, 2020, his conviction, his murder conviction for the unborn baby was um, undone. So he only is on the death sentence for 14 victims. Mm. But he has still to this day pled innocence throughout the entirety of the case. Interesting. And is he pleading like insanity or just innocent? Just, no. just boldly? He did not commit the crimes. Oh. Yes, his him. DNA was found on all of the victims, but he did not commit any of the crimes. That's what he's trying to say. So who did? I I don't know. Okay. He he's, he's got no alternative for who did do it. Okay. Mm-mm. He's just, he, he just knows that he didn't do it, supposedly. Okay. The only good thing to come out of these horrid crimes was the exoneration of David Alec Jones, a 32-year-old man with an intellectual disability that was wrongfully co- convicted of three murders and rapes. Hmm. I should say for the um, for his conviction, there were no witnesses, no biological evidence. There was blood on the scene and on the victims. It did not match his. Okay, hmm. the blood was a type A. He was a type O. So how did they convict this man? They were able to coerce him into a confession. Oh. And basically he had admitted to prior to the day of the actual murders, because it all happened on the same day he had admitted to smoking with some of the women. And that's kind of how they like were like, oh, well, you knew them. Right. So was that what you were doing that day? Hmm. Was he homeless as well? He was not homeless. He, mm. in fact, he actually had his life together. He had a job. He was living pretty well until, of course, his conviction in which he was sentenced to 36 years. Luckily, he only served nine of the years before they were able to find Chester. The detectives on Chester's case really wanted to pursue um, basically exonerating David Allen because they did have DNA matches for for Chester on those crimes. Mm -hmm. Mm. But they were unable to actually convict Chester of any of those crimes. So though David Allen did get exonerated, those those victims now do not have anybody like tied to their name. Right. It's unsolved now. Mm hmm. Mm, that's still like a decade of his life though like I'm definitely glad that he was able to be exonerated but that's a long time and and prison really does something to your mental and you already said that he was um you already said that he had intellectual disabilities so I can only imagine what the system would do to someone like that so that's really sad but it's it's great at the same time that he was able to get out Mm -hmm. once he was exonerated he did 
um, sue um, Los Angeles County and California. As he should. He was able to win 720000 from L.A. and 74000 from California. Okay, we live in large now, Playa. Mm-hmm. He's Your almost up to a right. million. Mm-hmm. I know that's right. So mm-hmm. even though Chester has gone, went back for his automatic appeal, he's not set for another one um, for, like, the rest of his little sentencing days. So he will still be serving the death sentence for his crime. Mm. Okay, so is it life in prison or death row? It's the death sentence. I don't think they have the death row in California. Death, yeah, they do. Death row is where you go when you're waiting to die. I didn't think they had the death penalty. So, okay, so here's the thing. They do have the death penalty, as I understand it, but they have not executed anybody since, like, the early 2000s, maybe, maybe even the 90s. So why so the just- they have it? What's the point? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what my thoughts are. But I think maybe two days ago, I learned that I was watching an episode of Criminal Minds, right? And this guy was executed like by a firing squad. And I had never heard of anything like that before in all my days. So I Googled, did some light Googling. And it seems like one big reason for a lot of states no longer doing executions is because you're supposed to have the option between lethal injection or the electric chair. Like that, that's your right as a prison inmate, you get to decide. But mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies have decided that they don't want their drugs being used or administered to kill people. So they have stopped supplying these drugs to prison. So if you're a prisoner and you decide I want lethal injection, they cannot like rightfully give you the electric chair. And obviously they can't give you lethal injection like you asked because they don't have it. So that's how people mm. are sitting on death row or you know, end up serving life in prison as opposed to the death penalty. But all of that to say, South Carolina, I think it is, or it might be North Carolina, one of those Carolinas has recently decided to, uh, has recently decided to form a firing squad to execute prisoners instead. So now your option in one of those states that I can't remember um, is either the electric chair, which they like to call, what was it? Like old Sparky, I think it is. You either get the electric chair or firing squad. I don't like how they have a name for it. I don't. Yeah, that makes it a little morbid. That makes makes it, it, they're trying to make it fun and it's not. But I guess that's what we do on this podcast. We try to make it fun and it's not. So we don't try to make it fun. It they act stupid, Jess. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about that. We yeah. have to see what's on our minds. I wasn't yeah. there when they were acting stupid. They did that themselves. He's on they still have the death penalty. So he's on the death penalty at the moment. He's yeah. On death but, yeah, but again, they haven't convicted any or they haven't executed anybody. So he'll be there forever. Unless they, they haven't executed anybody since 2006. Yeah. So he's either going to, if they do a firing squad, then he'll probably be executed. Um, But I think that that's kind of one way prisoners have gotten a a second chance at life in their eyes is that they get an option and one of the options is not available. So, but another thing about that firing squad in South Carolina is that now they're facing issues with forming the firing squad because they need like tactical shooters. Like they need actually like trained professionals why do they need a firing squad why Uh, can't it just be one person i'm a bit confused uh, by that 
I'm not sure. I know they stand in a line, basically. Do they just have like, them run or something? Like, is it like... Nope, they're just standing there. Oh, okay. No. Okay. They're, like, tied to a chair? Um, from what I saw, yeah, they're sitting in a chair. And they okay. put, like, a little, like, a target right above your heart. And you're supposed to, like, shoot the inmate right there and kill them, like, instantly. Do they go one-on-one, um, one, like, one by one until somebody, like, shoots them in the heart? I think they all fire at once. Yeah, no, that seems like a lot of work. It seems like a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's to um, make the execution. It, maybe it's to make it easier for the executioners so that you don't feel like, oh, my God, I just killed somebody. But even so, I'm pretty sure you do still feel that way. So. Because, I mean, even if you even if you were one person to miss you still are probably going to shoot them. Like if you're shooting them in that area in a place where they wouldn't be able to survive. So no matter how the cookie crumbles, you did kill them. You helped in killing them. Yeah. I'm sorry cool. to any executioners out there. If we're talking about your job incorrectly, we apologize. Yes. Okay. So the point is to prevent both disruption in the process or is the point of this is to prevent both disruption of the process by one member and also to prevent the identification of the member who fired the lethal shot. So that's what I thought it was. I thought it was so you couldn't tell who shot them, like who actually like killed but, them. Like, why would I know who's on the firing squad to begin with? I'm not sure if it's for the public or if it's for the firing squad, like that protection. I'm not sure who it's for. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. The last time it was carried out was in 2010. Okay, so they're really not even doing executions anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's it's kind of like a catch-22. Um, a lot of, I, it could also be, like I said, those pharmaceutical companies don't want people to be killed with their drugs, but also it could be because of like the recent kind of uh, debate about whether the death penalty is lawful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, usually a firing squad is military personnel, but in the event of like a death penalty situation, it is usually um, police. Okay. So we have firing squads in the military as well. Wow. We just really right. using them up. Yes, yes, yes. We do have firing squads. But yeah, like I said, it's been an issue now because they have to like get the police officers like tactically trained in doing such because you have to the whole point of hitting them in the heart instead of hitting them in the head is that the chest is like a bigger surface area so it should be like quote-unquote easier to like an easier target to hit um but yeah they you know the last thing that you want to happen is that all the police officers miss and this guy just bleeds out like that defeats the purpose you kind of want them gone as soon as possible yeah mm -hmm, true well, that's it for me. Do you have any other notes, Jada? I do not have any other notes. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of True Crime for Dummies. As always, you can find our links to our social media in our description um, on the podcast. We are available on what platforms, Jada? You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and... Google Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor. Anchor, 
And I think there's another one that I always forget. We always forget. There's like a yeah. one last one. We're out there in the world for you. Um, Wherever you listen to podcasts, you should be able to find our podcast. Absolutely. That's the important part. We hope to see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.